Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Hello, listeners. I am thrilled to share a project with you that has been in the works for some time. I'm pairing up with BWF Consulting to do my first ever sponsored program. We've decided to call it Finding a Sense of Place, a mini-series. It will be a several-month study looking at the complexities around returning to the office, or not. We're looking at the view of several different professionals, and our guests are all over the country, representing different levels of leadership and different sectors within the industry. I ask lots of questions around people's experiences over the last year and their plans for this upcoming one. We talk about logistics, preferences, and how plans to return or not play into future goals. Here's a sneak peek. I think that is what flexibility means to me. It's providing the space and creativity. And space is all those things, right? Giving someone the space to react is respect, is trust. And another perspective. You know, when it says, what does flexibility mean to me? It's being able to have that life design and to to meet all of my priorities, family, you know, faith, health, you know, kids, animals, all that. And, and, kind of almost on our terms and yet still meet the business needs or better yet exceed the business sure. needs. So this week we're going to start with a conversation between me and Josh Burkholtz, the CEO of BWF Consulting. We will learn more about Josh and his opinions on workplace dynamics as well as ask some of the questions we will be entertaining with Kareem Kefre, Allison Baker, Kelly Morris, and Jude Willie. So let me introduce Josh. In his nearly 25 years in the industry, Josh Burkholz has been driven to help turn tomorrow's dreams into today's realities. Josh, who literally wrote the book on fundraising analytics, has been recognized for his contributions to the field. Having received APRA's Visionary Award, been ranked fourth among the top 40 most effective fundraising consultants by Business Giving, and earned Case's Crystal Apple Award for Teaching Excellence. At BWF, he oversees organizational fundraising, leadership, and innovation, strategic planning, and change engineering. Josh has served clients by designing multi-billion dollar campaigns, conducting advancement-wise strategic planning, building major and principal gift programs, conducting high-touch donor sentiment analysis, and helping to integrate data science and technology to achieve measurable growth. In his free time, Josh enjoys composing music, performing on the upright bass, collecting vintage action figures and comics, and fishing. Now let's get started. (laughs) Hi, Josh. Welcome to The Debrief. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. I am so excited to get to know a little bit more about you and talk about your firm, but also to announce our exciting project. Fantastic. I'm so excited, too, to be partnering with The Development Debrief. Let's start with you, Josh. What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? Oh, it's it, there's a there's a lot, and it's hard to narrow it down. I mean, being in a consulting and service firm, probably a few things that come to mind. One is um, we had a lot of big problems to solve in 2020 uh, with the pandemic, the awareness of racial inequality, and so forth. And one thing we know about big donors is they love big problems to solve. So working through some of those strategies has been very fun. Working really closely on some of the de- 
digital development officer and student engagement team uh, developments we've worked with as a lot of universities had phone programs for many years. And that was oftentimes where a lot of fundraisers got their start. And we found it was really natural. I mean, when I was a kid, I was on the long cord in my parents' bedroom talking on the phone with my girlfriend or whatnot. <laughs> it was natural, you know, to be on a, in a phone center. But nowadays, the kids don't know that. And the students, that's not their experience. But we found when we equip them to be an influencer, like they are with Instagram or TikTok or, or Snapchat, and let them build a digital relationship with donors that they're actually outraising what they were in the phone programs before. So we had really wow. about that development. Um, and then others, I, I have a lot of reputation around data science and we are continuing to innovate on automation for identifying prospects and new tools and giving USA coming out. I've been on the board of that for many years and seen how Americans really stepped up and gave despite the pandemic. Of course, the market led to the big donors giving really big gifts, but we also saw people step forward, not only in formal ways, but in informal ways, like big uh, tips to their servers or just helping their friends and family. And I just love to see our culture, how generous it is, and to be part of that ecosystem. Did you say digital development officers? Indeed. Say more about that. Well, what we found is there, I mean, at its very core, uh, social media, for example, is a relationship building tool. And we're in the business of building relationships. And we found that there's been some success of fully building those relationships in a social environment. Uh, so there's uh, several organizations now, uh, probably led mostly in the university space, but also in higher in healthcare as well, where we're seeing fundraisers basically cultivate donors in a digital space with different sets that actually have portfolios of completely social media and digital uh, constituents. And it's really growing. It's certainly strong in the mid-level, but also in the lower major level. We're seeing people move all the way to successful solicitations completely in an online environment. Of course, that's been really successful in the pandemic period, but it was starting even before that. So perhaps the industry knew something was coming. I don't know. You've definitely piqued my interest. Awesome. What has been the sentiment that you've gotten either verbally or non-verbally from clients about returning to the office. I know we've been working all along, but going yep. back to the office. You know, it's, it's really mixed. I mean, from some, it's from the pure real estate perspective, like in New York City, paying those kind of rents and saying our production's pretty high and we're saving a lot of money in rent. It's sort of a no-brainer. And for others in some remote places that aren't New York City, they're seeing we can recruit top fundraisers that we couldn't before because they don't have to move to this remote environment. Those have definitely been positives, but some their staff have moved away and practically can we get them to move back? I mean, out of state, some out of country in a few cases. Overall, I think not everybody, but a lot, that there has been pretty good production in a remote environment. And there's still questions, will that continue? Because maybe the production was good because the donors also had to be remote. Now that they don't have to be as much, will that still be the case? Right. Uh, I mean, I think it's real that people do have that need for connection. So I definitely see that side as well. And I'm also hearing from clients about generational realities. I mean, we see the, the news headlines and others, but it does seem to be younger, not all younger, but uh, younger uh, employees seem to be preferring the remote environment more so than those have been in the work world for longer. Well, as a CEO and leader, do you have an opinion yourself whether in-person or remote is more effective and what are you doing with your firm? Some people thrive. I'd say it's the connecting thing is when the results are, can be very defined and measurable. And that's often been the challenge. I think back to 
the results only work environment. I mean, that was more than a I mean, it might have been two decades ago, you saw places like Best Buy, where it was completely results and not the office space. I think from my perspective, it, I'm, I have mixed opinions on some of the strategic work. On the upside, it's perhaps maybe been better for introvert engagement, that they've actually been a little bit more engaged than they have otherwise. Yeah. They're lacking some nuance of being in a room together, whiteboarding and, you know, kind of thinking things out. And there's some benefits there. And I know it's cliched for a CEO to talk about culture, but I think that it's a real thing. The happy hour, the water cooler, relationships among team members, you know, feeling like we're rowing together. I think there is that sense of belonging. So uh, I see multiple sides. What we've been doing is, I mean, in a consulting space, we've already been remote for some time. We've got consultants around the country and some international, but we also have some that are in our home base, our headquarters in Minneapolis. And it's sort of a mix because we're, we're trying to return to work somewhat in our Minneapolis office while maintaining remote outside. So we're a true hybrid. In fact, we were a hybrid before. So perhaps from our environment, we've got some insights that could be beneficial to our clients. Yeah, it's all about how to get the best work product, I suppose. But totally. I would wonder from you, knowing that you were in the office pre-pandemic and what you've been through, can you quote unquote, lead from home. What has that been like? I, I can. And at times I'd say I even prefer it. Um, I get a lot done without the pop-in meetings. There's no question about that. Like for me, there's something about that, I don't know, right of transition. Like the commute for me also like shifts my brain to, okay, now I'm in work mode. And I think there's something to that. And those pop-ins that I bemoan uh, and I'm happy about at home that they don't come in, they also have probably decreased my inbox when I'm around because <laughs> something that can be a quick chat versus five emails back and forth, that's a pretty cool thing. So can I? Absolutely. At my soul, I do prefer it a little bit <laughs> to lead from home. Um, prefer at home. Mm -hmm. but, but the reality is it's a soft prefer, a 55-45, because I really hate to be a fence sitter. I mean, maybe consultants are fence sitters. On the one side, it's this. On the other side, it's that. Uh, but the reality is, I think both sides have a, a good point, And that's why this is a legitimate dilemma. You've mentioned a couple of times being introverted about either yourself or others. And it raises a question that I've been thinking about it a lot, which is, should working from home be dictated by personality or should it be dictated by job function? And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it's it's really not exclusive. I mean, if I had to be pressed on the choice, it probably should be job job function if the role requires um, in person. I, I think that that would trump the personality. But I think that's a real key thing. I mean, if we buy into, you know, the Jungian uh, personality and so forth and introverts versus extroverts and where they get their energy, I mean, it must be said that extroverts have gotten their energy from an office environment. They recharge. Introverts get their energy from being apart. We should acknowledge that some people coming to the office does sap their energy, and other people coming to the office actually charges them up. How do we reconcile those two? And, and extroverts always talk first, so oftentimes uh, I think the world follows their lead. And, you know, it's funny because we are doing this project together, and you have said that you have the soft preference out of the office and i'm i, I am committed to being biased throughout this process but i would awesome. say my my preference is in the office uh -huh. and i don't know if anyone would be surprised to hear this but i would consider myself a pretty classic extrovert and so i get my energy from the office 
but really thinking about how others get their energy and respecting that and having that empathy and just understanding seems to be so important right now. Totally. I think through one project I was a part of was this book by the author Fred Keel, where I supported his research on uh, called Return on Character, where we studied the character of executives and, and the impact on their workforce. And we proved in data that leaders that are forgiving take responsibility, they have integrity and compassion, actually have four times the return on assets to the bottom line for their companies than those that don't. And we did this on a multi-CEO study. Um, and in the top quartile, we actually had nine times the return on assets. You think about things like compassion and empathy as fluff or something that might make it a great place to work, but it's also real. There's tangible numbers behind being thoughtful about your employees and what's best for them. And I think that uh, data proves it out. So I think we'd be short-sighted to not take into account how do employees get their energy? What's the best way to have everybody do their best if ultimately performance and success is what we're after as executives? That is, I'm so glad you've had the statistics and I'm not a manager, but it feels counterintuitive to me to provide flexibility in the spirit of ambition. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because I'm, a, I have a controlling streak, but like, right. That feels scary. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I suppose, and I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking out, out loud, where, where should controls be? Where should power be? It, right. And ambition to me has always struck me as something that we want to encourage. Maybe results is where there's controls or outcomes because the concept of accountability is really at its core of fairness that everybody is working hard as part of the team. But why I choose to perform is a matter of my ambition perhaps. So it's never as simple as, uh, as a control from a, a leader. It's also control while also encouraging. And that's a tough, tough balance and people overweight one or the other quite often. If they're too empathetic, maybe they don't have enough accountability in the office. If they're too accountable, people just hate their life and they wanna leave. Um, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think these are going to be topics that we explore over the next several months. For example, where I work, we didn't adjust any goals or metrics in an entirely remote year. And so that sort of begs the question, in a hybrid year, would we up those metrics? Would we keep them the same? That kind of goes into what you were saying about what implores us to perform. And so these are all mm -hmm. such interesting topics. Most definitely, most definitely. And it's it's a tough one to say with metrics because uh, really ultimately our goal is the successful fundraising, uh, the gifts that come from the And when the gifts are happening, metrics become secondary. When they're not happy, right. happy then we put much more attention at those metrics. And sometimes uh, we've actually viewed metrics as the solution. Metrics are just what to do if I don't know what to do. So, so it's an interesting thing about metrics, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Our real goal is raising money. We, we want to close big gifts. And when we see fundraisers raising big gifts, it's a funny thing. We're not that concerned about the metrics. But when we see the gifts not happening, it seems like we put more and more pressure on the metrics. But at the, their core, metrics are just stuff we do. They're not the why we do it. I mean, if it's a Simon Sinek, that's like the inventory, but not the why you're shopping at that store. And I think managers might be missing out a little bit on balancing out the metrics with the motivation uh, mm. of it. So I, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's how I viewed it. 
No, very, very interesting. Let's transition into talking about our project. I came to you, Josh, and really wanted to work with your firm and really explore knowing that you had done some research already with your clients about returning to work, but you and I talked and we envisioned this idea of a way that we could serve the listeners of the debrief and your clients of how they're thinking about their planning. And so let's share with our listeners without giving too much away how we chose who to work with and why and um, our holistic view as we brought that together. I think we settled in on the frontline fundraiser because in some ways that's the core work that happens in these fundraising organizations. It's perhaps the most unique to our sector. You could, I mean, maybe it's similar to sales in certain sectors, but perhaps the closest corollary, but at the core it is interacting with donors. And how does a remote work environment versus in-person versus a hybrid affect that ability to have that relationship? So we thought, let's look at the front line, but let's look at different states of office and in different regions of the country with different experiences, uh, maybe the stage or status of, of their transition. Um, and But at the core, relationship building is probably universal. I mean, it's one human connecting with another human. Um, what's, and so really, the, that, that's perhaps the control. These are all people that are meeting with donors to find their best selves. It's the relationship builders. What's different is where they are, uh, both regionally and in their progression to work. So I think the comparison and the commonalities are going to be really interesting. Knowing that our listeners are so diverse, there's arts and culture, there's higher ed, there's healthcare, and we will reveal our guests very soon, but we've been able to strike a balance in those sectors as well. And I think something that's been interesting about the podcast has actually been for people to listen to you know, how those settings are different and how they're actually very similar. Um, so I think that's gonna be fun. Most, most definitely. Um, in some ways, a frontline fundraiser is a frontline fundraiser. Uh, and and right. so, so there are definitely things that people do in common and, and the different sectors have different business models, uh, but there are certainly people that are uh, doing this work in very much the same way. It's what they're selling, the intangible, including the donor and something that's gonna be wonderful for them and also great for the organization. Uh, that, that is the connective tissue between all of us in this profession. Like as I'm talking to you now, I'm sitting in New York City, and in a lot of ways, I think people would agree we've been one of the hardest hit regions, markets, and our return to work may very well look different or have more flexibility. You know, we have long, I don't, fortunately, but a lot of people that I work with have long commutes, work in different states, you know, people driving an hour and a half from New Jersey. And that is a huge consideration as opposed to a 20 minute car ride. And then on top of that too, there's the return to work in the sense of a lot of people's donors are in New York City. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So are you coming to New York City? So we'll be talking about that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming to New York, going to Silicon Valley, places where donors are. um, It's it's a really, really good question. And where the donors are and their culture of openness, I I guess, Mm -hmm. I think it it, it indeed does vary. We have had some clients in some regions of the country where you might not even know there was a pandemic there. It's that different within one country. Yeah. And actually just today, I got an email from a donor who said, when are we meeting in person? And I said, 
well, when are you free? Because we've just been given the green light that we can do that. So that was exciting. Fantastic. Yeah, it, it is. It is exciting. That first time you go outside without a mask on, breathe some right. fresh and eat at a restaurant. I have to admit, I liked it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have embraced the no mask on the street for sure. I've been watching, you know, memes on social media and online and people are saying, why are we calling it return to work? We've been working the whole time. And, you know, why do we have to go back? I've proven that I can succeed. And of course, the opposite response. And I've just been thinking so much about this. And I was talking with a close friend about the project and she said to me, you know, it's really about sense of place. And I asked her, you know, what do you mean by that? And she was like, what I mean, and this particular person works at Harvard. She said, what I mean is that when I step onto Harvard Yard, I feel something different. Mm -hmm. I feel that inspiration. I feel that energy and that, and even on the hardest days at work, when I see students walking down the street, I feel my sense of place. This is why I work at Harvard. I, I love that. I really do. And, and a bunch of things come to mind. One is what I mentioned before about my sort of right of transition on how I shift modes. And there's something about right. this. There's also some aspect of being at work where I hate to say it's a performance because we're all our genuine selves, but there's some aspect of us that being a performer and this is our stage and we are a different self perhaps than when I'm at home in my lounge chair watching Netflix, which I love that place too. Um, and I think that's a cool thing, but I think about too, like true collaboration and what it does for donors. Like for example, we, in fact, I'm thinking of a study, it was 2015 in the American Marketing Association on developing donor relationships where they actually showed that donors themselves benefit more when they get collaboration from the organization's perspective. So let's say you're at a university and you're raising money for, I don't know, engineering, and the athletics department says, I wanna pursue that donor. And you're like, no, stay away from my donor that's an engineering <laughs> common thing. We have these sort of weird turf things in, in higher ed, but they actually studied that and found that actually if engineering just let athletics go and pursue that name and they gave to athletics, their lifetime value in giving to engineering actually went up. Mm -hmm. So it's actually by collaborating around the organization, the donors give more. And there's some aspect of the benefit of us being on campus, interacting with professors, interacting with other gift officers that provide a collaborative front that I think resonates with the donors. Maybe that's a sense of place too, because the sense of place is a location. It's also an environment of relationships. And right. we're in the relationship business. So I, th I think that's a really in intuitive and thoughtful uh, perspective. When you Google sense of place, a lot of different things come up and different graphs come up and slides from courses. But the thing that I really pulled was there's the physical setting, which is in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, our campuses. There's the activity. What do you do? Like you were saying, your brain switches, you go there, you, you get dressed up, you yeah. have your cup of coffee, you have a meeting across from somebody else. And then the last thing is like image and meaning, which I find so fascinating because that can really cut to the core of culture of what's the symbology around you? What are the uh, traditions that your community embraces? So I'm mm -hmm. hoping that these three sections can also be explored throughout our process of how important those things are to our production. I love that. I when you say that, I think about maybe Seth Godin and his, this is marketing where you yes. people like us do things like this. In, so, in some ways, that's that same thing. Like people like us do things like this. And what's that 
uh, communality, it, uh, it strikes me um, when we had studied donors, for example, uh, and we've done lots of donor studies. And one question that I loved asking that I found really informative is I asked, are you friends with other major donors? That was a simple question, just yes or no. Um, and some would say yes, some would say no. And then we looked back at those that said yes versus no. And in some of our clients, we saw three to four times the giving among those that had friends with other major donors. Interesting. So almost like a one-way or a two-way from organization to constituent and back and forth. But we've realized that that sideways uh, communication, the sideways relationship between the donors and each other is also a big lift in terms of their philanthropic relationship. Yeah. That's a part of that symbiology. Maybe it's not a physical place, but it's a sense of place in that I'm with people like me doing things that I care about and we're making a positive impact. So maybe that's part of the ecosystem to explore. Yes. I know this is a pretty controversial subject and I just wanted to put you on the spot once again and ask you why you were open to collaborating with me on this. This is a time when we're all exploring the new reality. We're all asking these questions. Well, think we've landed, or even if we speak confidently, we're not confident when we've made choices. And I know it's a cliche that management wants everyone back in the office and the employees want to be remote. I don't know that that's fully true, but I do see the perspectives and why that perception is there. We want to know what are the real measures of success. Uh, ultimately, the management role wants the organization to be successful, and they really think that that's a path to do that. Why did they land there? Why didn't the employees land where being remote? And I know it's not holistic, but that's what some of the cliche is. Yeah. And maybe it's better. Why do some people think one way versus the other and think strongly about it? As a company, our goal is, you know, we want to do things that make the life for fundraisers better. We're a mission-driven for-profit. I mean, there's a lot of firms like us in wonderful places. I don't want to say that we've got the, the corner of the market on making fundraising better, but that requires us looking at the tangibles and intangibles and really not assuming that we know. Uh, the burden on consultants too long, at least in our minds, is that we need to be right. The, re the reality is consultants need to be helpful. And if we're going to be helpful, I would think we really need to study issues and not assume that, that we know because of some high hill or pedestal that we're on. So we're going to be exploring through October. And I do think these next four or five months are going to be critical as we see, we watch people try and see how things work and don't. But a year from now, do you have any sense of how our industry will be impacted? And maybe I should actually start with saying, at the end of this project, do you think we'll be impacted? And what do you forecast? It's a good question. And I don't know. One thing that I do know is innovation comes from intersection. Now, it seems like a weird answer to your question. But two things coming together make a new. I mean, I'm a music I'm a major by background. I'm a bit of a musician and different genres popped up because one genre mixed with another, the two blended together or something new and cool we didn't know existed. And like, we like that. That's kind of a new thing. And in some ways, in a fundamental way that we work, there's two things coming together. There's the way it was. And then there's this new way that we all had to adapt to. It's rare that both of us dove in to two different models. We right, right. That are coming together. And we can make that choice and see what intersects and take what's good from one and what's good from the other. So where are we in a year? It's going to be some combination of that. I know everyone says that, but I think it's something even new because of uh, the innovation from those two things uh, overlapping. Do you think that some people will just 
go back to what they knew? Yeah, I do. I think it'd be unfortunate, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that so strongly. I mean, maybe it's the really the right thing for their environment. Maybe the disruption was, was different um, and that could work. I think some people will, will revert back. I'm not sure that the most successful places will change. Uh, change back to the way it was. I think they'll be landing a new normal. I mean, there's been too much benefit. Right. Uh, I look at the things and how this has impacted us for like for good. We've extended our reach with donors, for example. We can, um, people that we wouldn't have talked to before, we wouldn't have jumped on a plane to go to Laramie, Wyoming. I, I love Laramie, Wyoming, but most people don't go there because there's one donor or something. It expedited new tools and technologies to help us that I don't know, small arts organizations that are suddenly doing online programming that would they have made that investment otherwise? I don't know, but they'll be forever changed because of it. I mean, but then there's the challenge. There is that sense of community and belonging. I think people are, you know, we're social beings. We do like to interact with each other and it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different that we're talking. I'm in Minneapolis and, and you're in New York, but at the same time, how cool is that? That technology has made that so much easier than it would have been two years ago. Would we have had this conversation like this? I don't know, maybe. But I it's, don't think so. I don't think so either. <laughs> Even if you just sat down and thought about all of the things that have happened that wouldn't have, it shows mm -hmm. this huge expansion of what's possible when you think outside of the box and innovate, yes. to use your word. Absolutely. I'm excited. Well, I thank you so much for doing this with me and leading these conversations and I am truly so invested in finding out what works and I, I can't wait to go through the process so I thank you my pleasure and I would love to end with my signature question which is what do you know for sure <laughs> I know for sure that fundraising is a noble profession and what we, what we do matters seeing donors at their best is like an amazing privilege. And to know that we help them achieve their best. I mean, how cool is that to see amazing people for many of them doing the most amazing things they'll ever do in their life. And we were the nudge. That's a really brilliant nudge. I love this profession. I love being a part of this conversation and part of the, the whole system of fundraising. Uh, I couldn't agree more. We're going to be talking again to cap off this period of time and this experiment. And I am so excited to see how that will be different then. Thank you, Catherine. Me too. Thanks so much for having us and um, BWF be a part of this. It means a lot to me and I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by BWF. BWF is a full service philanthropic consulting services firm. BWF serves large and medium sized nonprofits in the areas of campaign management, high net worth fundraising, organizational consulting, data science, digital marketing, and technology. Clients include universities, health systems, arts and culture organizations, and NGOs throughout North America, Europe, Australia, and the Pacific Rim. As a truly comprehensive fundraising consulting firm, BWF has a team of consultants with expertise in every facet of philanthropy. For more information, please visit bwf.com.